hope I manage to be eloquent enough. Sometimes I feel like words are difficult. <laughs> yeah, now that I'm here, I'm like, oh my god, what am I gonna say? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I have so many ideas and things that you know I took away from playing the game, but I feel like a lot of it boils down to it's just a good story and I had a good time. <laughs> so I yeah. hope it don't sound like that. Uh, I think Charlie's gonna figure it out. Yeah. He's, he's been doing this podcast thing for a while. friends at Fangamer, and this is the podcast where you get to hang out with weirdos who work at a video game merchandising company. I'm your host, Charlie, and I'm joined today by Heaven and Kira. Say hello. 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 So this episode is going to be a bit different than usual in that I'm actually going to have a second set of guests in the second half of the episode, which I might actually separate into a whole second separate episode just so that it's not just one big honking episode i don't know I'll, we'll, we'll figure that out in post but uh in short a lot of people had opinions about this game and i wanted to hear them all except honestly if i have more than two or three guests at a time i get a bit overwhelmed so i'm just kind of cutting it into some manageable chunks here so today's topic is final fantasy 7 remake heads up if you didn't finish the game yes we will be discussing spoilers so fair warning if you've played the original Final Fantasy VII and not Remake, again, spoiler warning, since there is a lot that happens in Remake that doesn't happen in the original, and in fact, it's kind of hinted that the story will depart more in the sequels, if that, at least that's the impression I got. So yeah, one last thing before we jump in. We have a new guest here, Kira. Kira, time is short, but would you mind briefly introducing yourself? Hi, um, I'm Kira. I'm part of the general Fangamer community. I've done some work down at Fangamer. I've worked some cons and I've done some work at headquarters. And I just, I'm a gamer and artist and writer and kind of independent creative type. Perfect. Let's, let's go ahead and get started. What's everybody's history with the original game? Well, personally, I did not play the original game. It came out when I was very young and I hadn't started playing video games yet. And so my first exposure to Final Fantasy in general and also specifically to Final Fantasy VII was the remake. You were going in almost completely blind then. Yeah, pretty much. I knew a couple major spoilers for like what's going to happen regarding like major character deaths and things like that. But other than that, I really had no idea what the plot was, what the setting was. I didn't even know what Final Fantasy was. I assumed it was going to be like medieval fantasy and I was very surprised. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I think uh, that's definitely the impression a lot of people have with Final Fantasy is I think it gets kind of equated with any other like RPG, fantasy RPGs, especially uh, the early ones and I would say like Dragon Quest in general where, yeah, it's just medieval fantasy and that's it. But I, I think with Final Fantasy, it pretty quickly veered into more of a, uh, a steampunkish uh, vibe and increasingly so as the series went on. And th it, that's full in view here with Final Fantasy VII where people are walking around as soldiers with machine guns and <laughs> neon lights and all that stuff. So it's, uh, yeah. So other than like the, the stuff that you just kind of picked up through like cultural osmosis, what were you expecting going into the remake? Well, my first experience with the remake was at PAX when I played the demo because a bunch of my friends wanted to play it and convinced me to join them. And... I had a blast. Basically, I knew like Cloud is a character and we, are we, we're allowed to say spoilers, right? Sure. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And I knew Aerith dies, which I'm really still sad about. And I know it. <laughs> I still 
don't know how I'm going to react to that in the remake, but it's not going to be good. So (laughs) that's basically all I knew. And I basically knew the name Sephiroth, but that's pretty much it. Like, I didn't really know anything about these characters. So playing through that initial um, demo section, which is just the first chapter, really got me hooked because something about just the gameplay and the way it's that active turn-based RPG mm-hmm. battle, the way it's this kind of innovative system that I hadn't really, at least personally, been exposed to before. That was really intriguing to me because at first I found that really difficult. I was like, ah, how do I stop in the middle of this active combat to issue commands? But then I kind of quickly, I think, adjusted and my brain kind of went, oh, so it's like an RPG, but also I'm going to try to get as many hits as I can in between this. Sure. I think something about, yeah, that gameplay style and just the just the story, I think, drew me in initially because it's this, you know sort of dystopian, very steampunk, anti-fascist narrative that I can resonate with right now. For sure. Yeah, it, it reminds me a lot of this game setting called Shadowrun, which is very much about, like, big corporations have mostly taken over the world, and the players are usually just people who try to, like, live outside of that or just live within this terrible system and... I don't know, sometimes they'll try to fight it, I don't know, it depends on what kind of campaign you're you're working on, but it gives a completely different feel. But that, uh, that also feels like something that we could very well ourselves end up in, <laughs> if we're not careful. Yes. Uh, what about you, Heaven? I, I, I remember uh, seeing you say something about how you are sort of obsessed with Final Fantasy VII? Oh yeah, so I missed it when it first came out on the PlayStation 1. But uh, when I got a PSP in high school, one of the games that I played on that was Crisis Core, which is the prequel to Final Fantasy VII. And I immediately fell in love with it. Zack continues to be my favorite character in the entire (laughs) universe of Final Fantasy VII. So, of course, because I loved the prequel so much, I had to go back and check out the original, which I had heard was on the top of everyone's best game of all times lists for quite a while it seemed like so i did go back and play the original it was around the time when everyone seemed to be like "Eh, it really hasn't aged well like the backgrounds (laughs) are hard to see Uh, everyone looks like a balloon animal but when i played it i was like no this is great you are all right (laughs) (laughs) i haven't heard the balloon animal comparison before and i'm just cracking up That's a really, yeah, that's a good visual. So, yeah, since then I've played Dirge of Cerberus and watched Advent Children, and I haven't read all the novels or anything yet, but... Wait, there's I'm novels? It. Oh, yeah. Oh, like, like official <laughs> novels? I heard yeah. that apparently some of the characters from the remake actually came from the novels, like Leslie and Murray, they came from the novels originally. Yeah, so these wonderful new characters that we met... Uh, have existed the whole time, it turns out. Wow. Oh my gosh. All right. I've got to look into this pretty soon. Oh, but... yeah. <laughs> yeah. Suddenly, I want to get into all this too because I like, I don't know, I'm, I'm getting to the point of like hyperfixation where I'm like, oh man, this is my newest obsession. I love this game and I want to, you know, <laughs> everything to do with this game. Like, I really want to, you know, so I really want to go and, and play the original, which is what I started doing. And it's been filling in the gaps, obviously, from the remake and things I didn't quite get but still i have a lot of questions and i just love stories that are told in such a way that you have plenty of questions but there are still enough answers provided to keep you going and so that's something that i guess has been really drawing me in about this title for my part i can say that i was like 12 whenever the game came out and i knew how to play rpgs a bit and i was really excited for this one because i had played some of the older final fantasies but 
the first time I played through the game, I played with a uh, with with cheat codes, like uh, with a game shark. So I had it set up to where everybody was constantly using limit breaks. So I just like <laughs> breezed through the game pretty much, <laughs> which was a bit weird. It wasn't until a lot later that I actually played through it like properly, but I, it was still just a lot of fun, and I was uh, really into it. I did play a little bit of Crisis Core, but never finished it. Oh. Yeah, and I, I like it seems like it really has to go some really interesting places. I don't remember why I stopped, other than maybe I just didn't want to carry my PSP around with me all the time. And uh, I have Dirge of Cerberus, but never actually played it. I did watch Advent Children, which I gotta say I'm not wasn't super into because it it, it made things a lot more anime than I was. Than I had envisioned the world to be to begin with. Yeah, <laughs> and it feels it feels that way even with the remake, which is uh, I guess somewhere in between. Where yeah, every once in a while, Cloud will do these like crazy physics-defying things. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Advent Children kind of has that like Dragon Ball power creep where it's like, yeah. oh, okay, you're taking it a, a little too far. In this point. Just, just gonna hop off of Sid's spear as he's just swinging it around. Like, yeah, this, I guess if that's how you, if that's what you have to do to get two miles into the sky to fight the big dragon, then okay, whatever. Right, like how how on earth did Cloud survive that fall from the top plate to like, you know, the church in, in Sector <laughs> 5? So I noticed the discrepancy when I was started playing the original that um, Jesse specifically says that the plate is 50 meters off the ground, but in the remake she says it's 3,000 meters off the ground. I'm like, that's a big difference. I wonder yeah. why they wrecked on that. <laughs> they must have, like, and they made it so much bigger, so it's so much less probable that cloud would have survived so now i'm like great explain that one to me yeah he hit a bunch of pillows on the way (laughs) (laughs) i mean well i mean if we're being if we're being fair people have survived falls out of planes before usually if they pass out on the way down which it does seem like he did yeah that's true so he was nice and limp and whenever you survive a fall from a plane uh, they they talk about how how people survive it. They don't usually mention the fact that you don't usually walk away from it. You, you do still need medical attention. Yeah. <laughs> Cloud was just ready to go. He's ready to fight Reno. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was a tough fight too. Before we get into the into the the nitty gritty and just let, let's let's get an idea of what did you guys think of the remake generally. Let, let me get your general impressions of it, and then and we can get granular as we as you talk about certain things that really stand out to you well i guess i'll start so i love the remake this is what i always hope for when they uh whenever a big game gets a remake is i hope that they number one don't feel like super 100 percent bound by what happened in the original Mm -hmm. i want them to change things if it makes the game better for sure and but still like explore more of what was set out originally which this game does basically exactly what i wanted it to (laughs) you get to better know the characters a lot more than the original everything is so endearing you just want everyone to succeed the city of midgar is beautiful and also terrifying it's amazing it's full of design and the music is really good the musical is dynamic and changes like fluidly depending on what's going on there 
so many moments in the game where there's just this perfect drop in the music. Like when you fight Bex badasses in the <laughs> Detroit Highway, it starts out with the like reggae version of the Wall Market theme. And then when the fight starts, it immediately turns into this like club mix, like super jam. <laughs> it's just so engaging, so beautiful. I love it. <laughs> yeah, the music is really incredible. My favorite track, I have to say, just just as a kind of non sequitur, is Midnight Rendezvous, which is the one that plays when Cloud uh, reunites with Aerith after after sneaking out of her house on the way yeah. to. Yeah, oh. I love that track that's just sort of harpsichord like sound gets me every time that whole segment this chapter like four times <laughs> yeah that, the whole like cloud and Aerith part of the game is oh it's so good <laughs> yeah Very solid yeah in the original you know it, it happens similarly like you sneak out the house you go you go over there and then Aerith is like oh, I already beat you there you can't escape from me let's keep going <laughs> and then yep. you just kind of go through this sort of dungeonish feeling area that was once a highway and then you get to the uh, to the playground and then it sort of feels like all right there you get this brief sort of date ish get to know each other segment and then it just kind of continues uh mm-hmm. and in in this one though like that whole dungeon experience feels like the first parts of like th- this whole thing became a date for them yeah. and they they get to know each other and then like she's uh, Aerith's like slowly pulls out the, the, the high fives from, from Cloud. Yeah. It's so perfect that he messes up the high five every and time. And then he goes for it and she's like, wait, did you just? Uh-huh. <laughs> it didn't happen. And, and then whenever it finally whenever it finally works, like so so by that time you'd already done a bunch of things where it's like you get the interact thing and you have to hold it down, hold the button down for it to actually happen. And that they did it there, it's like that very hesitant, slow raising of the hands and pop, yeah, we got it, we earned this. It's so it's so perfectly awkward. It's awkward in the way that you would expect Cloud to be. So it it just feels right. Yeah. <laughs> so key for Cloud's character that he's like so closed off like that and uh, you also see in the remake which I think was not apparent enough in the original is that generally when Cloud talks to people they don't like him at first Yeah, and I thought it was interesting. Uh, sometimes when you finish side quests and the people are like, oh, yeah, thank you so much for doing that. And then I want to, as a player, be like, oh, yeah, you're welcome. Anything I can do to help. But then Cloud's just like, yeah, whatever. And he, he says something. Sometimes he has some real jerky things he says to people. And there was at least one uh, in Sector 5 where at the end the old man's like, you're a real jerk, you know that? Like <laughs> the old man and the, and the young guy in front of the weapon store. Yeah, he, he's just like, I just told you about my bad legs. And you told me to, to bring the key back to the graveyard and cause just like, not my problem. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of really good explorations of Cloud as a character that didn't really exist in the original. From the very beginning, or, or like, or I'd say from chapter two, whenever you're getting away from the from the reactor, and all of a sudden you start having these. Uh, or actually, it start even starts in chapter one a little bit, uh, where Cloud has these flashbacks with like these PTSD situations that existed a little bit in the original, but they're explored so much more in this one 
and it doesn't it doesn't stop stop to really explain it. Right. And, I had so many questions and still have so many questions about those. Yeah. But they were they they made less sense in the original because then he just starts hearing voices and nobody questions it. Whereas here they're like they like people look at him and are very concerned about his well being. Like, are you okay, dude? Like, are you? The and, about the fifth time this happened and someone and he said i'm fine i was like oh my god cloud just talk about your feelings <laughs> <laughs> but i mean it comes down to the like he doesn't really i don't think he even really knows what his feelings are or what those problems are because he's you know we'll get into that some other time in the sequels but yeah because this it is not really going to resolve in this game so i don't want to uh, get too spoilery in case you know, you want to continue experiencing it uh, purely through the remakes. But also, generally, this front that Cloud has, where he's got to be this tough guy, or he thinks he has to be this tough tough guy all the time, like that's what a mercenary is, or something like that. And the way that different people react to it is very interesting, especially the girls, like his potential love interests. They all react to it in very different ways. Tifa, I think she believes it. She believes that this is who cloud is and maybe she gets hints that that's not necessarily the case over time but especially at the beginning like she sees this hard creature that he's become and it scares her like she doesn't like that right and then there's Aerith, who she she sees it as an act and she sees right through it and she has no patience for it whatsoever she punches holes in his ego constantly and then there's Jesse who sees it as an act and thinks that's awesome yeah. because <laughs> because she's an actress. Exactly, yeah. Like, and she I wishes she was that good at it. <laughs> yeah. She's like someone who, can, who I can keep up with. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, it, and it's so so cool to to see this this exploration of the character and the way they interact. That yeah, you just don't get whatsoever in the original yeah. especially anything having to do with interactions with uh biggs wedge and jesse who mm, are absolutely. just yeah they're 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 the crew you know they're there to help you out <laughs> they have they have some some personalities but like you don't really get anything out of most of them especially not biggs yeah. i was disappointed going back and playing the original how little i get to see of them and i was like these are like this is like my family these are my friends coming out of the remake and going into the original i was like they're just that's it. They're no longer in the story. That's, uh-huh. that's all I get. And it was weird. For sure. One thing I wanted to touch on before we move too far past this was that um, this is maybe a little bit off of the direct topic, but I think it's relevant, was that um, the whole of the original to me feels so fast paced because of the amount of content they put into it that it kind of gave me this sort of narrative whiplash where I felt like I was just being dragged around like a dog on a leash who didn't want to actually walk. But <laughs> When I was playing the remake, I felt like it was actually taking the time to like go into each facet of the story, maybe too much at times, but in general, I felt like it was in a way that I really appreciated, in a way that I really needed to fully understand and appreciate the way these characters interacted with each other. I do find that very interesting, and I, I'm kind of curious as to what it felt like for people who did play the original. Like, Did it feel fast-paced to you guys originally, or you know, did this one feel very drawn out? No, what's interesting is... Uh, having played the original first, or having played Crisis Core first and then the original, <laughs> the original play felt so slow. <laughs> like, I, at every point, I just wanted to get on with it. But 
now in the remake it's like wait no this is great i want to live in this world forever yeah. <laughs> i just want to keep remake, playing in the space yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the remake i found myself continuously like every chance i got being like okay i'm gonna go to my ps4 and i'm gonna play this game i'm gonna you know beat this game i beat it all in like the course of a week or so and then when i started playing the original i found that i would have like an end of play session for like several hours and then I would like take a day or like a couple days or even a week off like I actually haven't picked it up for like maybe a month now because I just need like time to digest and think about what's happening because I felt like there's so much happening in a short span of time so that's very interesting to me that that's not how it felt to you yeah yeah I mean uh, looking back at the original and uh, the first time I played through it I was just so along for the ride that I didn't really stop to question uh, most of what was happening or, or why and it wasn't until later that I looked back as like Man, Midgar is such a focal point of the game especially at the beginning but like we don't spend really almost any time there like what is this huge city that we just don't really get to see especially like you know up on the plate it's a lot weirder in hindsight than it was at the time and I think especially if you start with the remake and you go back, it feels a bit differently. Now, I know that some people feel uh, it's actually like the opposite. Like everything should be going fast because you're on this time limit. Uh, I've definitely heard people uh, like complaining about the fact that after you learn that Shinra is going to be dropping the plate on Sector 7 from Don Corneo. And they're not sure whether he's telling the truth or not. They're starting to work their way there. And it feels like, all right, at that point, maybe every every second should matter. You should be rushing along. Right. Like, chop, chop, chop. Get over there. Save these people. And it starts going into much slower sections. Like, you got to go through the sewers, and then you got to go through the, the train graveyard. Yeah. It, it kind of maybe, like, for, for them, they feel like it is not as fast-paced as it should have been, as it, and as it was in the original. Uh, where, yeah, you go, you like, the, the sewer section and the train graveyard, they're pretty quick you snap right over and you get and you start to try to save sector seven yeah it's it's like a weird tonal imbalance there but yeah i I think you're right about that section but that it definitely did feel um a lot slower because i felt like at that point i needed to rush and that i needed to get somewhere and that i wasn't being able to get somewhere and it was kind of it was a little frustrating but not necessarily in a bad way it was just like in a way that it made me very invested. I found that when I was playing this game, kind of in any game I play, I, I really sort of take on the role of the protagonist. And I really kind of envision myself in the universe and think about how I would feel in these situations. So I felt very real emotions as I was playing through this game. And so that whole section, I was very anxious because I actually didn't know if the plate was going to be dropped or not. Mm-hmm. And so I was just trying to see if I could do anything about that. I was just trying to rush along. And I was like, all these people that, you know, that I've come to know and that are counting on me could just die. And so that was definitely a section that was a little slow, but in like in a frightening way. So in a way that yeah. felt challenging. You felt the the need to keep going forward uh, and it was, yeah. it was pressuring you. And yeah, as it should have been. Yeah. Like I might've played that whole section a day or two, <laughs> like, <laughs> a whole couple, like several chapters. I definitely yeah. rushed through that part. There's a lot of aspects of the game that I, that I'd like to cover. And I feel like our time is uh, running out pretty quick here. I guess let's see. So let's, let's kind of go over like, what, what are some of your favorite moments from the, the remake? Oh, I, I love when Cloud shows up with the motorcycle and Shinra headquarters. 
and they all make their daring escape. That was super badass. It was very over the top, but I loved it. Like uh-huh. it needed to be over the top at that point. And I was like, yeah, this is funny. Actually, one of my probably favorite moments was when um, Heidegger says, like, who are you lot? And then Barrett's like, avalanche. And then Barrett's like, local florist. And then we have Red 13, who's like, rat dog. I just burst out laughing. I had to pause the game because I was cracking. <laughs> I was like, yep, that, that's pretty much it. And I was trying to explain the whole thing to my sister who doesn't know have a clue what this game is about. I was like, and it's funny because I was like, oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's only really as funny as that in context. And you kind of have to have been through exactly. all this with these people up to that point. I was like, yeah, <laughs> it's pretty much true. Uh, what about you, Heaven? I already talked about the Cloud and Aerith bit so much. Just the interactions between all the characters is so great. Like, later on when you, you, you're going through the underground and uh, Aerith and Tifa have the little interaction and they're they have talking. Some yeah, yeah, they're talking behind Cloud's back right in front of him. They're <laughs> a pack chocobo. I love that. <laughs> they, I, I think that that whole part is is so good, especially since like, or there there was a there was a lazy easy way to have done that. That that I think in in a lesser game would have definitely taken this direction, where these two girls they're like, oh, we're both interested in this guy, therefore we're just going to be like mm-hmm. mean and catty to each other the whole time. No, they're just like, nah, we are girlfriends, and we are so happy to be hanging out with each other, and it's it's, yeah. it's such a charming change. Yeah, and that whole, like, you know, putting girls against each other is so overdone and so, like, unrealistic to a lot of what I see with in my interactions with other girls anyway. So I really like the kind of interactions that, you know, we finally are getting to see out of some more recent games where we're having a lot more of a, like, nuanced look at female relationships and, and that sort of thing. So I really liked having those girls both support each other because, like, honestly, I found it really interesting seeing both Tifa and Aerith pitched as love interests or potential love interests in this narrative because I really like them both as characters and I want to like them both. And then my brain's telling me I have to pick one of them to like with Cloud. And I'm like, but they're both such great people for different reasons. And I want to be friends with both of them in real life. Like, <laughs> that it's, it's really interesting. It's like, well, I guess I like Tifa romantically with Cloud, but I really like Aerith and Cloud as a friendship. They're like a really special relationship that, you know, I think deserves not to be overlooked. So I think just the fact that it made me feel these conflicted feelings was very effective. Oh, yeah. And I also thought of one more um, interesting moment that I wanted to point out that I really liked was the Chapter 14 resolutions, which there's three three different scenes you get at the beginning of Chapter 14, depending on whose affection level is highest. Hmm. You either get the Aerith scene, the Tifa scene, or the Barrett scene if you have n- affection with neither Aerith nor Tifa. And so I went through and I 100% completed the entire game. So I got all those. I the first Originally playing through it, I got Tifa scene. And I really liked that because I was like, oh, this is great for, you know, the shipping quality and just how how cute they are together and all that and how they have this childhood friend narrative and this you know she's just really lost everything and she's kind of feeling hopeless and he actually realizes like oh yeah maybe i should give her a hug like so that was nice and then the era scene was real dramatic and i think um what i heard from other people is that it has more implications if you've actually played the original you'll like so i don't know if i can necessarily speak to the intricacies of that scene but one of the things that i thought was interesting that was I really liked the Barrett scene. The scene that Cloud has with Barrett is he, Barrett starts talking about um, some of the other Avalanche members that you don't get to see in game, and some of the um, just 
his thoughts and feelings of the moment. And you can tell he's actually really warming up to Cloud, and he actually like feels better after talking at the end of and, and the conversation. He's like, never thought I'd feel better after talking with, you know, your hard-boiled ass. And he actually <laughs> says that. But, yeah, and <laughs> but then I was like, just seeing this this relationship between these characters evolve from just in the remake, seeing, you know, super gruff Barrett and kind of full of himself Cloud and honestly the original, I feel like. They make him a lot more... Uh, he's a lot different, I think, in the original. But the fact that these these two men who really don't get along in the beginning really grow to respect and admire one another, I thought was a really cool revelation. Yeah, and, the, and the, they they exhibit that not just in their their in their conversations in like cutscenes and stuff like that, but also in the way they interact with each other as like while you're walking around especially by like by the time you're actually going up and assaulting Shinra HQ at the beginning whenever Barrett uh, and Cloud were getting into a battle with each other and they'd win and Barrett would be like oh yeah and he'd be and Cloud would be like yeah whatever uh but then by the end <laughs> Barrett's like oh yeah that was badass and Cloud is like yeah I guess it was wasn't it <laughs> yeah, I, know. I like how, how that changed those you know comments changed over the time as well too especially with between the two of them I really liked that uh, do you realize if you climb the stairs rather than taking the elevator in Shinra HQ you get a whole different set of conversations oh yeah you literally climb up all of the stairs which uh-huh. I really loved because yeah. Eric complained the whole way. He's like, how many stairs are there? Why are there so many damn stairs? And he just has every complaint under the sun about the stairs. And it's just cute how Tifa's just like trying to keep like Cloud, Cloud and Barrett from like bickering. But you can tell it's not really like mean-spirited. It's just kind of almost almost playful at that point. Yeah, you know? they're, they're mostly just commiserating about the fact yeah. that they're climbing and, up so many stairs. Because then Tifa chastises them and then Cloud goes, but I wasn't like, he was going to, and then he just kind of drops it. But it's like, it's interesting character development for Cloud. It's just, it's adorable. Yeah, that's, that's such a good scene just in general. Like, it was also really good in the original climbing the stairs that same way, but you definitely feel them getting <laughs> yeah. tired so much more in this one. It's so key that the, they have the little on-screen indicator of which floor oh, each yeah. character is on. And it swaps <laughs> depending on who's in front of you and behind you. And, yeah, and you really feel who, it. Being a person who has climbed stairs myself, I can directly relate. Like, I haven't fought monsters, but I've climbed stairs, and I know how hard that can get up. <laughs> For sure. I can be a hero of Midgard, too. Uh, there's a couple of other good differences between the original and the remake that I uh, that I want to explore. One is a, very, is a fairly small thing, and it's just the fact that you Cloud in the remake never goes down to the avalanche like planning room you know it's there right yeah yeah i noticed that yeah you like you see it and if you if you played the original you know how to how you're supposed to activate it but you never go down there uh it's just like this this place that you just never get to see and it makes sense like why would they bring him he's not really part of the the group or anything like and all that stuff he's (laughs) much less part of the group in the remake than he felt in the original yeah but another really cool moment that I, i remember just like feeling really good about is so after Cloud and Eris get to the um, to the playground, and then they see Tifa go by in the chocobo cart. Cloud runs up and is like, "Whoa, whoa, what's going on? Are you okay?" And she's like, "No, yeah, I'm going. I, this is this is my choice. I'm going over there to get some information." And he's like, "Oh yeah, yo, you're very capable. I'll just let you go ahead and do it." And then he just gets off. <laughs> <laughs> 
and it's and it's Aerith that's like, no, she's in danger. Yeah. What are you doing? Go get, go. Let's let's go save her. But I just really appreciate this trust that Cloud has in in Tifa and oh, and how it's everybody else that starts to make him worry. <laughs> <laughs> Between uh, Aerith and, and Johnny and everybody else, like, oh, it's so funny. <laughs> uh, I would say that my favorite part is just generally the whole wall market sequence. Yeah. It's just so, so good. Just going from, from one place uh, to another, meeting all these characters. A lot of them are very new. Everything having to do with the Honeybee Inn is just awesome. Oh, it's fun. Yes. Oh, they did it well, so well in this game. <laughs> I will, I'll play through the whole chapter just to get to that sequence. Yeah. <laughs> Even though I'm bad at the dancing minigame. I, I did not do great the first time I did the dancing sequence. And I was like, no, I got I to gotta start over. I don't mind watching this. <laughs> the, the only problem is that I really wanted to stop playing the, the sequence. And I just wanted to watch the dance. Oh yeah, I know, right? I just want to be able to like watch the dance. Like, I almost like wanted them to replay it just so I could watch it after I finished that section because <laughs> it's so good. And you know what? I really wish they would do. I just, I really wish that they would publish like a behind the scenes video of like the original choreography and the original dancers because you know they had to have an actual group of dancers in there like learning yeah. at choreography and dancing because it's incredible choreography. And as someone who comes from a dance background, I would find it super interesting to watch how that's done and how and translated into mocap. That would be something I would really like to see in the future. The real life version of that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So many of the little scenes that made Wall Market interesting, like not only the honeybee in, but the gym. The gym is so funny. <laughs> you go and do squats. When Cloud gets a hand massage, you kind of, like, <laughs> the original, it's kind of like. The implication is that uh, something else is happening because you don't really see it. But no, in this one, it's just no. She's just really good at giving hand massages and shooting <laughs> blue clouds mine through his hand. <laughs> and the Hell House fight, of course. Oh my oh, goodness! <laughs> Which kind of seemed like a throwaway thing in the original. It's just some it, random uh, monster. It, like what the hell? <laughs> Hellhouse and I have history, as heaven knows. Oh, yeah. Because uh, I decided to play through the entire game in hard mode because I decided to 100% complete it. And I actually started streaming on Twitch for the first time ever just because I got so frustrated trying to beat Hellhouse in hard mode that I needed my friends to watch me and support me while I did that. <laughs> So I actually have started streaming because of this game, but specifically because of the Hell House fight. And it took me, I don't know, how many tries did it take me the first time? Oh, it was hours. It, it was a lot. It was it was like a it was like a, at least five, six hours stream, something like that. And I finally beat it. And then the second time I did it, it was like immediate. <laughs> <laughs> that was like uh, I was like, Are you kidding me? Hard mode boss fights, because you hit the level cap, it becomes a game of just getting the right materia and getting the right techniques. You really gotta get intimate with the game system. Yeah, and you really feel like a tactician of, you know, you're overseeing this whole fight, and I really enjoyed that challenge. If that was necessary, that'd be one thing. Like, I'd be like, no, nah, this is this is stupid. Like, why? Right. But since it's, it's hard mode, like, none of it's necessary. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's fine. Like, yeah, you want to go challenge yourself against Hellhouse? Cool. Sounds great. And, yeah, I, I also managed to beat it eventually on hard mode. And, yeah, I think I, I think the thing that, that messed me up a few times was not keeping an eye on whenever it 
uh, spits out those little tonberries. Those tonberries! Oh, oh my, my gosh! gosh. <laughs> they drove me absolutely insane. Yeah, they are ridiculous. I definitely think that though Hell House is the hardest hard mode fight. I don't think that there's any harder fight after that. Like there definitely were some that still I had to you know figure out. But like the one that requires the most precision in terms of dodging and when to heal, when to and just how um, long it is. Yeah, that's true. And just how much magic you have to use and all that. Which it's so hard to use magic in hard mode because mm-hmm. no hard mode, you know, you don't recover MP from benches or from completing quests. It's a whole other challenge. Yeah, I think I feel like like Hellhouse would be potentially impossible if you weren't planning on fighting Hellhouse from earlier in the chapter, because because yeah. you might have just accidentally used up your your MP. Because I mean, you've been through an entire tournament by that point. Yeah, <laughs> I had like twenty MP on Aerith by the time I started that in hard mode, and I was like, oh crap, <laughs> I had to use a lot of soul drain. Yep, yep. But I like that the game was something that initially, actually, when I originally did the the normal mode demo, I was like, oh, this is kind of hard. And I was like, I'm, I'm maybe not so good at this. But then I got to a point when I pl- had played through the whole game where I was like, yeah, I totally got this system down. And it got to such a point that I, you know, it was a game that I love so much that it actually was something I wanted to take the time to learn how to do in hard mode. And it was something that I really kind of went the extra mile to, to challenge myself with. And the fact that the game, you know, was able to challenge me and interest me enough to absolutely 100% complete it. Like, I got all the trophies. I also got all of the little play log criteria checked off. I did absolutely everything. The fact that it was able to entice me to do that, I just think, speaks a lot to the quality of this remake. I haven't actually finished playing it on on hard mode, I think. It does make me feel a little bit better to know that, yeah, Hellhouse is probably the hardest one and then pretty much downhill (laughs) from there. Yeah, you did it. Um, it's the hard part. So, so one particularly interesting thing that I that I really have to talk about is the what are they called the whispers and just yeah. generally the role that they play in this game because they were completely non-existent in the original. And at first, I was really hesitant about them because it seemed like oh, these are the things that are going to make certain that things go the way that they went in the original. Right. In the future, I'm going to go and you know we're we're going to have to go save. Aerith and like we know that all right Sephiroth's gonna drop let's run up to her and as you're trying to like cross over some some stuff to get to her like these things are gonna be in my way and I'm gonna have to try to swim through and they're not gonna get there in time and she's gonna die <laughs> and, and that, that kind of made me upset about like these whole the whole existence of them but by the end I felt like that's I don't I feel think that yeah that is their role but the fact that you get to fight them off and some sometimes like change things by fighting them off makes me think that uh, things can actually go very differently in uh, in the future of this game. Like that's why I don't refer to this game as the Final Fantasy VII remake. I think its its name is Final Fantasy VII remake. Uh, yeah. Both because yeah, it is a remake of the original, but also <laughs> you might be able to sort of remake the story and it shows up in several different ways like in the original whenever the plate falls uh or sometimes even before the the, the plate falls like Biggs Wedge and Je- Jesse are dead they're dead dead they're not coming back I know it's sad and and but in this one you get to find Wedge and like he seems like he's fine like whenever you leave him and then you, you see the, the plate fall on him and it's like oh no this is a terrible way for him to have to go because he's just saving his cats but then you go and find him and you pull him out and I, I actually don't know what happens to him in Shinra headquarters like I looked away for a moment and I just see him like fly out a window or something like what did I miss <laughs> So I don't know what's what's going on there. And there's also the implication that Biggs is fine too, because you see him um, 
at the end of the credits, you see him upstairs yeah, in the leaf house. Exactly. And so that just makes me wonder, okay, what about Jesse? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> okay. I love her. So, yeah, I just like, all right, so things are changing. You're moving the needle in this game a bit. And yeah, that, that makes me really excited to see where this series continues to go. Especially at the end when we see yeah. that there's the possibility that Zack may have lived. Okay, yeah, that, there's, that, there's that weird part. That whole ending sequence, like, all right, so spoilers a bit for Kira. I'm sorry to have That's to... Okay. Uh, I understand. But, I'm very excited to learn more. So there's, there's several visions that people have of the end of the game, like the end of the original. And it's like, all right, this is the fate that is awaiting you. And the, the characters are like, no, that sucks. I don't like that fate. Can we do anything about this? And I think the game is trying to tell you, yes, yes, you can do something about it. That's awesome. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a real bummer ending in a, in a lot of ways uh, in the original. And you might be able to do something about it. And that's wild. That is so cool. And I, I, I'm really excited. <laughs> Yeah, the whole thing feels a lot like a love letter to people who played the original and who, you know, inscribed it in their hearts and really took a lot out of it because it seems like there's a lot of kind of lines that are included in there for the sake of people who were really affected by Aerith's death and for people who have really been like internalizing, you know, thoughts about these characters for a really long time. And I'm probably not the best person to speak to this, but <laughs> but it's it's interesting seeing just, you know, how much of a cultural phenomenon this game was and has continued to be because of this remake. I also want to say, that it, now that you're reminding me, near the end of the game, Aerith has this, like, speech that seems, like, prepared. Mm. And she tells Cloud, like, this is the crossroads of destiny. <laughs> and, like, stuff like that. And, like, don't fall in love with me. Yeah, poorly. That brings it up in a, in a second playthrough. Uh, noticing the way Aerith acts in a really subtle way. Like there are parts where uh, when they're first like escaping the church and Cloud's like, what's the deal with all these freaking ghosts? And Aerith stops and says like, I think they're, and then she hesitates and says like, never mind. And they just keep going. Mm -hmm. Like she's discovering things about the world and like holding it in. I think that has a lot of implications knowing that Aerith has this like deep connection with the world that she's learning as they go. <laughs> yeah, that was super intriguing. I can't wait to see more of that. All right, well, unfortunately, I think we're just about out of time and there's so much that we didn't really get to cover and that sort of bums me out. Uh, oh, we, we did get to talk about the music <laughs> a bit. We definitely got to talk about the mechanics a little bit, so that's good. But I feel like there was a lot more to say about uh, the music in general, like, you know, the way it's all works in this new version. And you get to just kind of collect them and how different it is uh, from the original and how it's, you know, more incidental than... Uh, than in the original, but all right. Well, unfortunately, we are we are out of time because uh, I've got to start preparing for my second set of guests. So thank you all both for uh, for making the time to talk to me about this game. Thanks thanks so much for for coming to talk to me about this. Oh yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for inviting me, both of you, and I'm, I was really excited to be able to be part of the podcast. Uh, so yeah, we're gonna take a little break, or possibly we're going to end this episode, and then we'll be coming back with a couple more guests. So stay tuned. <laughs> Thank you.
Hey everybody, this week's Fan Gamer News is going to be very short since this is such a big honking episode. I just want to follow up on the news from last week about Jack's stream by saying Fan Gamer actually has streams every week on Thursdays starting at 2pm Arizona time, which is either Mountain Standard or Pacific Daylight time depending on the time of year. Each week we have someone interesting, such as Jack in his Unity slash 3D modeling stream last week, or Eyes 5 in her plush making stream this week. Our next few upcoming streams are scheduled to be artists Jorge Velez, Nina Matsumoto, and Laura Verdon, where they usually take audience requests. It's a fun time. Check it out. Now let's get to the second half of this episode. Internet. Welcome back to Your Friends at Fangamer, the podcast where you get to hang around with weirdos who work at a video game merchandising company. I'm your host, Charlie, once again, and I'm joined this time by John and Everdread. Say hello. Hello. Hey, it's me, Everdread. Wow. And I am John. <laughs> We're going to continue talking about the Final Fantasy VII remake, but first, before I do, every time I have a new voice on the podcast, I like to have that voice kind of introduce themselves a little bit. So, uh, John, this is your first time here. This is a different John from a previous John. Yeah, I'm John Terp. I, I'm okay with my full name being out there. Yeah. Okay, perfect. As opposed to John K, who was our previous uh, our previous guest. Uh, audibly, y'all sound nothing alike, so I don't think it's a big concern. But anyway, uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, who are you and what are you doing here? Oh, uh, yeah, I'm a relatively new hire here at Fangamer. I'm working on like game development and publishing side of things uh, for now, given how we're all remote. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, I come from a game development background. I've been working in the industry for about you know six years now, uh, doing porting and development help and consulting and flying around the world, helping studios ship games. That's pretty much it. So I think that'll provide, between you and Everdread, who also works on video games, uh, has a history in that regard, that'll make this a very different half of the episode than the previous one, because uh, the previous half we talked a lot about the story, the characters that we really liked, how we liked the music and stuff like that, comparing the original game and the new one in terms of story beats that we enjoyed. But I'm very interested to see how y'all think about it from a development perspective. Going in, though, let's, let's start a little bit by asking, what was your experience with Final Fantasy VII before the remake? I remember, uh, so this was before I had a PlayStation back when, you know, it was the hot new console, and I visited a friend's house, uh, and they had Final Fantasy VII. So me and a group of other kids are kind of visiting. Uh, we were watching the game being played, and I remember this feeling of, like, there, this is totally new. No game has been like this. This is kind of blowing my mind. Uh, and then I remember it was like a, another kid who had who'd never played it either. He was trying it uh, at this kid's house. Uh, so it was like the very start of the game. And he actually messed up. And he left the, uh, is it Jesse? Uh, he left um, her kind of trapped and continued mm. through it. He made the mistake there. Uh, and then like the kid who owned it was like laughing, kind of like, oh, you're going to have fun with that. And he, he ended up losing because of it. And I was like, <laughs> wow, the game actually, like, so that whole sequence worked really well you could really mess up in this game. It almost made it more ominous and interesting than it, the experience of like this surprising play out of a game that just seems so beyond anything I'd ever experienced before. It was really momentous. And I actually, I played it very soon after I got a PlayStation and I got the game. And then like, I was super excited to play it, but my sister actually took it 
and started playing it instead. And I couldn't play it. And I forgot. <laughs> I, I, I got something else afterwards. And I, I actually hadn't played Final Fantasy VII until years later, where I went through the entire game. It was such <laughs> such a quick drop. It really was a surprise. It was like a, it was a moment in gaming history where like you just didn't expect to see something so different from everything else. It was it was on everybody's mind at the time. And if I can put some give some further context to that situation, that's like really at the, at the very beginning of the game, I believe, whenever you're going to blow up the reactor and then you, so you, you set the timer and then you're working your way out and something blew up uh, and it lands on your, your companion, Jesse and you can just on your way pretty much just stop and talk to her, pull her out and get going. And you have to do it. If you, if you do not talk to her, she will stay stuck. Yeah, you need her to get out and there's a timer. And so if you pass her up and just keep heading heading out you'll get to the point where you need her again and you're like oh no oh no i need to go get her and then you have to run back and waste all that time and yeah you're you're much more likely to just end up getting blown up with the reactor at that point yep it's a rough lesson to learn and i it, i don't was there really any other point in the game that does it it was like a weird for a starting sequence it was such a weird like high stakes thing that it worked really well for building tension in the game like that sort of set the tone there are definitely certain parts of the game where if you misperform in the overworld segments it will punish you uh, mm. like on the train into the second reactor fight i believe if you don't push through the train during the id scan it will just dump you out farther down the tracks mm. okay yeah and it makes you walk quite a quite a way so there's stuff like that there's stuff where it will punish you which was out of the out of the kind of language of design at the time for like for story elements to be affected that way it's just so risky from a design perspective of having like a straight up came over like for the person who has that happen to them that really sucks it's like a break-off point that's like having an alternative play out is much safer but man like as a kid i thought that i was like oh like this this friend of mine sucks and i you know i'm gonna do better when i play it was how i kind of took a came away from that experience so we're really about a communal one they actually do do that again without any pressure, though, is if you uh, climb up the rope to Shinra Tower and you don't get the batteries from the junkyard guy first, you have to climb all the way back down again and go talk to him. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, John, what was your experience with this game before the remake? So when I was a kid, my exposure to PlayStation 1 was through my sister's boyfriend. Uh, and, you know, he, he would always bring it over. And I think he, he brought it over and left it over so I could play it. And I got up to the point of at the end of Shinra Tower when Genova breaks out and Sephiroth is there and there's blood everywhere. <laughs> I got so freaked out by that one moment that I couldn't get past. I didn't want to play it anymore. And then I didn't <laughs> pick it up again until I was like 20. <laughs> For sure. Uh, so I've actually never beaten it. I've only ever just gotten out of Midgar. So so pretty early on. Uh, I was inspired to go back and play it because the remake came out, though. So... Uh, in the previous section, we talked a lot about things that have changed between uh, the original and this one. That whole like terrifying section where you wake up uh, in the original, where you wake up in the uh, in the prison and you just start seeing like dead people and blood everywhere, and this ominous situation as you work your way up. Like I feel like that's pretty absent from this one, and it was, but it was so important in the original that I still am fascinated by to this day. I think a lot of, when it comes to the actual story of the differences between the two games, the the density of the original's Midgar and how surprising it is repeatedly, that was, that was really memorable. Like, 
taken as a whole, uh, if you have to play it a bunch of times repeatedly, it's the only thing you ever experience, it gets a little boring. But the first time you play through Midgar, it really keeps a level of tension and pulls you through really effectively. And that's part of it. That build up to Shinra Tower, then things are really going off the rails there. And because it's it's going, it, it goes at a very quick pace where it pulls you in, you're not spending too long dilly-dallying uh, before that point. It's really strong. They had a hard job coming to a essentially a Midgar remake and extending it out like 10 times the length. That's a tricky situation. And um, yeah, there's a lot of, there is a lot of things that they had to kind of make changes with and not necessarily a lot of stuff that me or John may agree, <laughs> agree with were for the best. Yeah. What did you think of the game as you played it? What are some parts that stand out uh, one way or the other? I think when you preface the Final Fantasy VII remake, it's almost impossible to look at it objectively. Right, because like the final a remake of Final Fantasy VII has been a topic of conversation since the late '90s, right? Maybe as like as early as like when Final Fantasy VIII came out, right? Where mm-hmm. it's just everybody. I feel like everyone is just like, yeah, I want to see this on PS2. You know, it's just it's always been there. And and Final Fantasy VII when when it came out was this kind of revolutionary. It was like so ahead of anything else that had come out at the time. Yeah. It's hard to look back on it in that way because we take all that stuff that Final Fantasy 7 did first and well in some regards became part of the mainstream of most every game took a lot of the DNA from that just like Metal Gear came out around a similar time so when you talk about you know is it a good game you know you know design wise it's hard because I feel like they they are given an impossible task that no one attempt would please everyone for sure Um, I mean they even embrace that aspect too the idea that oh you 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 really kind of need to have played the original, right? This isn't a game that you just played by itself. To really get the full value out of Final Fantasy VII Remake, you have to at least to some degree remember the original. Like You have to realize the plot development, at least for this section of Midgar, and know how things went down. And then if you played through the entire game of Final Fantasy VII, the original, there's a lot of things that are like, whoa, you're, you're finding that out now? This is not for the fresh fan. This is for established people. That was their mindset pretty clearly from I, a design perspective. It's interesting you bring that up because I might counter what they wanted both. They, they mm-hmm. really, as you play this game, you can definitely get the feeling that they wanted a new crowd as well as the old crowd. And I feel like that worked to the game's detriment quite a bit. I So I played this, I played the remake without having any memory of seven, basically only like the first hour. Uh, so to your original question, which I've gone completely in the weeds on. Sorry. <laughs> the d- design parts of the game. This, this is a really long preface to me saying like, it's just, I'm going to be hard on it. But <laughs> I, I believe that this game is very good for what it, wanted to be they achieved what they set out to do and i think i think that's fine i think people like this game and i think that's totally valid of, a, of an opinion i like this game um but only parts <laughs> very you know, sections of the game yeah um, I, the way i came to it i stayed pretty consistently because we me and john were playing through the game at about the same time uh, i think i was a little bit ahead through most of the gameplay but like we both were kind of talking to each other about things that we we're experiencing in it and for john's side uh john kind of was bouncing around like at the very start you're kind of blown away by the sort of presentation i remember i will will say that it's a demo of the game too the opening prologue the first make a reactor explosion is so much better than the rest of the game (laughs) it's unbelievable it's It's the dot it's it's well it's it's more than just it's like the dialogue is way better written and way better delivered all the mocap is like the highest level like 
you never see that quality again until like the very end and the, the combat is really tight there's no real frustrating enemies as they introduce them the first hour of that game is amazing you can play the demo and and maybe not move on to the full game and just appreciate for what that was a remake of like kind of a nostalgia trip for that but it's it's one of those things where like the rest of the game it, almost immediately after that prologue, there is a sharp decline in quality. You know, that first questing area... You I think get, the other elements of the game come out more, and then it brings down what was essentially an extremely tight demo slice. There's issues with padding. I'm just going to be upfront. They went from three to four hours to 30-plus hours. Like, they, the content of the game doesn't really justify a lot of the narrative, like the, the beats. Like the original was very solid and strong. It has its imperfections, especially with its localization and like the way they, it's experienced in certain ways, but it was a tightly designed experience as far as getting you from point A to B to C to D and you're out of Midgard. It's really solid in that sense. The first hour of the game of Final Fantasy VII Remake, it does a really good job pulling you forward. You're, you're swept along with the action, it's escalating, then it de-escalates. And then it slowly builds up for you know. Yeah, but then all the all, like almost immediately all the candor, all the characters become flanderized and yeah, it, like that that first opening, I love every character in there. They introduce yeah, them. You're, so you're experiencing them under duress. You're experiencing them yeah. having strong reactions and emoting and stuff, and then you get tens of hours of them kind of like, oh well, this area is interesting. Look at that, you know. Just it's such a reduction of that experience. I came away and pretty solidly, I, I thought the, the start was very strong. And then I was like, okay, yeah, it's it's better than where I thought it was going to end up by a pretty far margin. I, that's where I always like, imagining where an FF7 remake could land. Um, the entire uh, time I played the game, I was like, this is better. This is better than where I thought they could take it. This is doing its own things in enough ways that I, I like it. The, the, the sort of fan service returned elements that are escalated, um, especially with like the Coliseum a battle against two mouths. <laughs> so, uh, but the the escalate, they knew what to play up well, and that kind of kept me throughout. But I, my, my general takeaway is that this was like, um, if I had to give like a score, like an eight out of ten. This was an enjoyable experience and better than what my expectations would have led me to believe it would be. Yeah, I see that a lot. I see a lot of people. That's why I kind of had that preface because for people who play Final Fantasy VII, they seem pretty satisfied by this. Mm-hmm. They seem to be really understanding and be like, and I think it's way stronger. You, if you have played the original, it's in your mind. It is a significantly stronger experience because it's it's very clearly building on the, that experience in a lot of the situations that, like, yeah, a, a totally new, fresh player will get enjoyment out of them. But there's a depth there that's like, yeah, these nods and winks, you, you really should have played the first game. to understand. Like, It helps a lot. It really does help the, the sort of flavor yeah. of the game. Uh, I can say that uh, in my first... Uh, in the first part, uh, one of my two guests was somebody who uh, this was their first game uh, in the Final Fantasy VII mm. franchise, uh, and wow. uh, and uh, they were super down for it. They they were like, "Man, this has nice. got me interested in playing more." They that it got them to go back they and play the original. Play Final Fantasy VII, the original now too. Yes, they started on um, playing the, also, the original. That seems really common because, like John Turp, um, you you kind of went back and started playing again as you got deeper into the game because you wanted to. I I, I yeah. actually I actually did not finish remake at all. I watched the rest on YouTube. I got the Shinra Tower and then uh, played the original game of the Shinra Tower and said, "I want to play this instead." <laughs> Stop playing. I, I, I my dislike for the design aspects of remake are pretty deep. Um, so I, I similarly I got to right before Shinner Tower, and what got me wasn't I was enjoying the game pretty solidly. I played you know twenty plus hours of it, but 
the side content, trying to, I'm always a completionist. I try to do every little thing. I did everything up to right before Shinra Tower and I got burned out. And this happens incredibly commonly with video games, especially long RPGs for me. I'll play them, try to eke out every little bit of content then totally end up missing the last third of the game, last quarter of the game because I, I eked out everything else. Uh, my characters are like, at that point my characters are super broken they destroy everything instantly there's no challenge the game has been ruined effectively by my gameplay i've destroyed the experience for myself and i recognize it so i never let that for uh, form my opinion of games because i didn't get the egg and then yeah i look at the content online i see someone else playing through a non-commented playthrough and see what that content is like i'm like okay that that's fun i i should have just gone right through it and let the experience pull me through did you also stop at shinra tower and never complete it yeah, yeah, I saw right before I did all the <laughs> <laughs> The interesting thing about that to me is that Final Fantasy VII, the original, was the last Final Fantasy that I actually completed all the way through. Like, I've played eight, I played nine, I played twelve, and in all uh, all those other ones, I did something very similar. I like played like you know two thirds, maybe three quarters of the way through the game, and then I was just like. No, I'm done. I, I don't really feel like I need to finish this. <laughs> I exact same boat, because I, I played through Final Fantasy VI to the end many, many times, and I'll yeah. still do it. I played through seven um, to the end, I think, two or three times, maybe, in my my lifetime. And then I, I think nine is my second favorite game after six. I've never beaten nine, and I've never beaten any of the other Final Fantasy seven, uh, Final Fantasies after six. So yeah, I, I think that's the same situation where... There's definitely a, a dry, it's it's easy to get burned out on these games. It's easy for the length and for the content that you're experiencing to kind of, depending on your method of play of how you like to experience this content, just to not see the end. And it's that's a rough thing for a design experience of trying to make, like, I don't want to be too negative, but like a narrative should do a really good job of pulling you through to the end. Final Fantasy VI did that really effectively. I think Seven does that. It's end ramp up. You want to know what happens. I don't know how much the same... I know 12 did not. 9, I kind of felt the desire, but the, the open world stuff got... I, it was too much content to chew through. And just making sure the pull forward is really strong is so important for these RPGs. Yeah, and, I would definitely say that there's an issue with filler content in RPGs. You know, you have to... You know, you want to make your game long. And I feel like seven or 6 and 7, both those Final Fantasies were the last ones where I believe they had a... A good plot throughout or like yeah. a really compelling plot throughout most of the games after that or most rpgs following those games where it was kind of this race for how long can you make your rpg they, they have a really dull middle and yep. very you know it takes a lot of investment they want to get you to a hub open world where you're doing all this other content and they they very naturally just they feel that okay the the tension should de-escalate a bit there's some leads but you'll find those at the end you want to do all the side content and that's actually i think a mistake i feel like side content you should always be like well i really want to know what's happening with this main stuff is this side content compelling enough that i actually want to do it and because it's sort of subverting the natural tension and plot like a good plot should make you want to avoid side content side content should be there for people who want to do it in completionist and find challenging things but that plot should be pulling you forward that narrative is what should be driving the experience for an rpg like this or, or there's this other uh, tactic i've seen in some games where yeah at some point it does kind of open up there's a bunch of things you could possibly do but if you don't do them in a certain amount of time, the game is like, all right, we're continuing. <laughs> and, uh, if you really want to get back to this stuff, maybe there'll be an opportunity later. But for now, the story is going to continue and uh, we're going to keep this this momentum going. I think that's actually pretty smart. 
I, I would agree that like as long as they can return to that content, it's not lost forever. Because that'll get that'll make people mad. That'll make yeah. me mad. <laughs> like, I, I will I will find any way to subvert that. I will do you know that will that will make a weird experience for me. But if I can return to the content, great. I, I choose one or two things that I'm forced along. Fantastic. That's a driving force. Like essentially, a, a narrative should be driving you. That's that's like. That's that's clever. I, I'm, I'm interested in games that do that. Actually, I'll have to copy. Yeah, Witcher Witcher Three on the RPG and on 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 the topic of games that inspired the remake uh, pretty heavily. The Witcher Three does a great thing with side quests where every single one tells a short story. It's hmm. not. It's not. They don't really do the go here and 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 do that sort of uh, frivolous side quest. There's just so to length. And 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 well, yeah. And like doing certain side quests before you finish a, like a main story quest can actually have direct consequences. Sometimes major on those main story quests you do at certain parts of the game. And I feel like they kind of nailed it. Like CD Projekt Red did a really great job in The Witcher 3 of making everything you do feel important, whether it's defeating the kind of Skinner Box uh, character aspect of getting stronger or what I feel is the more important aspect in RPGs is the narrative side of things. Yeah, the world building, the way the world unfolds and having actual changes of major narrative events of their main plot line because you did secondary plot lines. So that's a huge deal. It makes secondary plot lines, um, side content so much more worthwhile if it weaves into the major main narrative. And here in the remake, None of the side plot actually matters at all. <laughs> Not a bit. You get to see a different dress, uh-huh. um, which is nice. I enjoyed that content to some degree, but it it wasn't worthwhile uh, at the end of the day. Yeah, I, whenever I was playing through those parts, I was I appreciated it insofar as in the original, like you go to the Sector Seven slums, and then it's just kind of you spend the night, and maybe you can wander around and go shop at the weapon shop or something uh but then like you, you move on to the next mission pretty quick uh whereas in this one i kind of appreciated being able to just hang around meet a couple people actually in the slums and i was like oh this this is kind of interesting sucks that all these people are gonna die but uh, <laughs> uh but i appreciate like maybe that'll make it more impactful later and in the end what it does is not that at all like most of those people end up surviving and i, I kind of i guess i can understand that but it felt less impactful to me more in hindsight to have done all these side quests for these people who really didn't really matter in the grand scheme of things yeah the side quests they weren't good side quests if that content is there and that's you could sink some hours into doing each hub side quest that that content wasn't interesting. It wasn't, I, I'm not sure how you make it more interesting in different ways. Essentially, like the big goal I, I always think of, like when you do side content like that, I want to see the areas that you're doing them in improve and get better. I want to see like a lasting consequence from what my actions are. That kind of is subverted immediately because a big pizza falls on them. If you could get people prepared and they're more actively doing things at that point because you helped them with side quests earlier, there's ways that you could make it a more impactful experience. That doesn't help the actual play out of side quests. The side quests design themselves were like, very rudimentary go to the spot and, and interact with this thing and then you know fight the monster that's there it's the side quests are tough and they put a lot of them in these hub areas like they try to make these little hubs i don't think that was the ideal way of going i think they tried to they make try, it they yeah they tried to make it like i think the reward that you get for for doing them is you get to spend some more time with the character that you're spending time with in this hub area. That's true. So, so you get to spend more time with Tifa in Sector 7, where you know she's leading you around, she's introducing you to all these people, and if you go do all these side quests, you get to have more conversations with her. I think that's a really smart way of looking at it, and I think that is the goal, is to essentially give you more interaction points. And They just didn't give 
much. <laughs> That's the thing. There's ways to make side quests more fun and interesting than what they did and maybe have half as many side quests and spend more time on each one to make them a little bit more interesting mechanically. Essentially, the reward for doing them is the interaction with the characters and characterization, which is good stuff. That's a certain type of player that's interested in it mm-hmm. versus the player that is doing all the side content a lot of times as a completionist they're just doing everything because that's a number that is getting filled up and they're much more focused on the mechanical experience of what does the combat play out what is this doing that's like a strange divergence is there a challenge here that's like more of a ramp up than the other content i don't think on that level from a mechanics perspective they achieved a very good job with that content there certainly wasn't much of a mechanical reward for any of those things, except for maybe you got some extra experience points, which are kind of not that big a deal in this game to begin with. (laughs) Yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk about all the little trinkets you have to diverge and go find and how useless every single one of them are. (laughs) I I I mean, you check for items and finding new um, new materials. Yeah, going and finding the chest and the Moogle medals. Like, I... I, It's always... (laughs) I believe there's a large amount of the game that is dedicated to just going and getting those things and well, none Moogle of it Metal, actually matter, matters let's at talk all. about Moogle Metals because that's a design thing right off the bat. Moogle Metals, so they're a currency that you get in this game that eventually um, about, what is it, a third of the way through halfway, eventually you go to a shop that you can buy items with the Moogle Metals. Mm-hmm. The only way you get Moogle Metals is by destroying completely Crap, like, Crap Bandicoot crates. They're just they're doodad crates randomly yeah. put around areas and they're random. What you get from them could be very crummy potions or Moogle medals or maybe some other items that escalate a little bit. But they, they're they crummy items, so they're a very minor reason to destroy every box you see. You're supposed to slice every single box because they're randomized. And you do want Moogle medal rewards. The shop has actually very important, like literally stat-up items that like from a completionist perspective is the most important thing you get is the, the permanent stat items. So it's important. The completionist wants to do this. It's random. So you might need to farm boxes to get enough Google medals. From a design perspective, just place them in the world. You can scale that. You can actually design it around how many they, they would like if they're a completionist or if they weren't a completionist, getting to the point of the shop. If you do it randomly, you can't do that. You have a rough idea. They do give a way to grind them out, which is to play a mini game and just let it go. You don't have to do anything in the mini game. You just let it end. Uh-huh. You always get one greedy Moogle medal. I did that for like, I think half an hour. It took like a minute and a half. You you lose and you get a Moogle medal. I did that to get enough to get all the, the extra items that I wanted from the Moogle shop. That's not that's not a fun way to spend your time. No, and that's my fault. It is my fault. I am the the I am the person well, decided let, it is worth let's a lot say, of time. But they it is encouraged by the design and uh-huh. frameworks of the systems there. And that is what you always want to be careful of. And from you want to be completionist minded. So we want to be minded for the people that are experiencing all this extra content because you're putting time into it. What is their mindset going into and how are they approaching it? You know, they everything's it's not like there's any other random elements throughout the game. It's very strange. And it's it's worth being said, it takes five seconds to swing Cloud Sword when you're <laughs> out in the open world. So actually breaking these boxes does yeah. take time. There's a sequence where you have to shoot. The only way you can get them is to shoot them with Barrett. You have to hold down the shoot button and hold. Oh yeah, all the ones up in the target <laughs> things on a wall. Yeah. Um, so there's a literally there's a hallway that has probably like fifty plus boxes on the wall. Oh, and more than that for sure. Yeah, you're slowly holding the button, and sometimes you have to repress it to get them to retarget. It's all wonky. You're like spending. It took me at least three plus minutes to hit every box in this huge hallway of boxes to get friggin' Moogle medals. I don't. It's so <laughs> frustrating. I was like, really? This is a thing. You're not going to let me have an AOE that just blasts all the, these away in a really satisfying moment. There's certain ways that you can make that kind of fun 
it's punishing a player that wants to be completionist. And some devs like to do that because it's like, ah, this is what you get for being completionist. People are still going to do it. They're still going to kind of ruin their like experience. Those were put there to probably try and recreate that aspect of the original game of of exploring and looking for items and yeah, and stuff like course. that. But they, but they didn't have a game design reason in the combat system to actually make you do that. Oh, I, I, I can say this. Uh, so so since neither of y'all quite finished the game, I can say whenever you do finish the game, you get access to uh, a, a version called hard mode, which is yeah, yeah. same same as before, except everything's a little bit harder. And also you don't get to use items and whenever you stop to rest at a bench, you don't recover your MP. And so in hard mode, suddenly all those little boxes are a lot more valuable. Oh, because some of they them... They give you recovery. Yeah, they, they can recover your MP. And for like from, from the beginning to the end of the chapter, that's your only way to recover MP. Other than like getting into battles and having it very slowly recover over time or using abilities that do that. But yeah, there's you can't just rest. You can't use items to recover it. I, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily that, that it justifies the existence of these boxes, but it does help. There's a design reason there that, that that does make sense. It's just a weird mismatch of how much time went into it of all these other other elements of the game and what these like really minor rewards for a normal playthrough are. Like I was thinking, how do you make something like a randomized element? How do you actually care about something? Um, within the terms of a normal playthrough. And I was like, I guess a big boost of AP, if if I found a chest that suddenly leveled up a materia pretty quickly, uh, gave me like, oh, you know, the stuff that you're equipping all gets a boost of AP, that's a pretty big deal. That's like a, a reduction of grinding necessary. Um, there, there's, there's ways from a narrative and mechanical way to make the rewards here interesting. Definitely feels like they did not have enough time to sew together the various pieces of this game. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely it has this the feeling of having parts of this game developed by different teams at different times. It, that's like the hardest thing. I think like, you know, Ubisoft spent the better part of two decades figuring that out and are just now kind of getting their hands on it. So it's not easy. Like open world games are the hardest you could possibly make. How did you feel about the uh, the the weapon system? So there's you get weapons throughout the game uh, and you can equip, you know, you equip new weapons. And they set up a system where you can essentially slot in points to upgrade your weapon. So there's reasons to go back and forth between previous weapons depending. How did you feel about that, John? To me, it didn't matter. Like, uh, like the <laughs> weapons, like what weapon you used never really mattered. Uh, what I found was because there, there are there are parts of the game where there's opportunity. There's different kinds of enemies that fly away from you, and there is opportunity there to give everyone a different kind of weapon that had longer reach or maybe did some sort of ranged attack uh, that they didn't take advantage of. Well, that's the thing. Like what I found was that they all pretty much became the same. The differences between them was that one weapon, which might be your starter weapon, would have essentially, when putting points into it, became the highest attack. One became the highest magic. Those were the two concerns. All your weapon abilities, you just, you would use a weapon enough to get the new ability, then you got it forever. So then that immediately that weapon is gone if it's a crummier one. You wanted Cloud to be an attacker, so you max out your attack. This one weapon, even when you get new weapons, when you've actually put slots into them, fill them up, it doesn't matter. The original weapon you had was stronger. You only equip it to get the new ability and immediately go away from it. The enjoyment of getting a new weapon and feeling like, yeah, I am a noticeably stronger fighter now, it was gone. It was like completely removed by that system to me. And it was frustrating. It was like, 
what was way more important was getting levels so I could save a few extra points to get plus seven attack or something on a random weapon. And the, the statification, the stat values were so off the wall weird to me. I couldn't understand from a design perspective why some weapons, like you put a few points in, you get plus seven or you get plus 10 or plus eight. Or I couldn't understand like a reasonable reason for these tiny differences. Uh, it didn't make any sense to me and it felt like frustrating almost. I guess they were making, they're further differentiating the weapons between each other, but it was just a, a very sort of senseless implementation of a system that, with a little bit more time, a little bit more stewing, um, could have maybe gotten something a little bit more interesting. I think if weapons had more overt, unique modifiers to them, that could have been a bigger deal, but they didn't. There wasn't a huge enough difference for like the stat, it just didn't matter. As somebody who has played it in, in hard mode and pretty much maxed out most of the weapons, I can say that generally speaking, yeah, uh, you, you found a weapon that you liked and you stuck with it. And especially as you got to the higher levels of each weapon, the differences between them became smaller and smaller over time. Yeah. Still, there was the one, you know, there's the one that's really good at physical attacks. There's the one that's better for if you like to use magic. Some of them have uh, an emphasis on speed, especially for Tifa's weapons, and others mm. have, might have an emphasis on defense. And I found those stats, those, those stats didn't really, like, attack and magic mattered. It's It felt like a game where, again, the, stat, the other stats... Not nearly as important. I, I don't know whenever because I use Tifa a lot. Like she was usually my main uh, in any battle. And if you the the difference for her between a high speed weapon and a low speed weapon, like you felt it, or at least I did. Okay. Especially as it got up there, and she's just like, bah, 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 and then she runs around to the other side before they get to attack. Like you feel like you're floating like a butterfly and stinging like a bee. Uh, yeah, can we talk about how much better Tifa plays than any other character in the game? For sure, yeah, it feels really, really good. Uh, I remember saying like, um, you're kind of like, oh, at the start you enjoyed the first area, then you were like, oh, I'm gonna, this is actually kind of feeling less than I was thinking. I was like, well, wait until the, you know, you get your next party member because they're fun to play. Their combat is actually enjoyable, and Tifa is way more active and interesting on that level. Tifa feels like it was made by a different development studio than any other of the party members in the game because <laughs> yeah. she plays. Very tightly, like a Tekken character. Yeah, she's a brawler. She's it's, it's like a, yeah. a beat em up, and it, it's effective. It's good for that combat system. She has aerials. It's it's great. Yeah. If you set up your um, yeah, your shortcuts, you can definitely like chain combos into it. It's oh, just yeah. it's so satisfying. There's a few different ways to play with her. You can play her pretty straight, just do normal attacks and use up your bar. But like you can save it up, do a multi thing where like you're really dishing out damage. There is a good balance between how you wanted to play her. That was a very nicely designed character combat playout um, setup and gameplay compared to oh my god Barrett. Barrett was bad. Like it's he's the ranged guy. Mm-hmm. It, and you can do a big, strong attack, and then you go back to, to being the just plinking away, and it feels so uninteresting. Cloud is a little bit better than Barrett. You get the triple attack, which has you jump from enemies. And I, I played Cloud a lot because of that single attack that I spammed through most of the game because it did the most damage, the most cost-effective. It was a very good attack, which made him the one to use. And it was cool seeing him jump around. It's cool that, you know, that was satisfying. But I played that... I used that attack so much. Whenever I returned to Tifa, it was interesting and fun to play her, and it felt like things were kind of evolving with her gameplay. Yeah, I definitely felt like, uh, yeah, Barrett Barrett took me a while to really get used to. I, I had to get used to him because there's some, uh, especially 
whenever you get to the battle simulators and you have to do more things with just like a single character at a time. So I, I got I got used to him and eventually I kind of came around on him just because like, yeah, he's slow, he's lumbering and he, he yeah, he's not super interesting to, to use but because his stats, his defensive stats are so much higher, like he can just sit there and absorb the damage uh, while he's yep. firing away, which yeah, again, not super interesting, but anybody who's ever played a tank in any sort of RPG or anything like that, you, you know that okay, this is just the way it is. I, I guess what it comes down to is the the differences between what makes the their playouts unique. Uh, Tifa's is very active; you're constantly searching up and changing enemies and moving around. Uh, Clouds, I really didn't like Clouds' guard system. It felt kind of annoying to use. It made you slower, less active to do a, uh, a riposte sort of counterattack move. And then Barrett was just yeah, you're plinking away every so often you can do a big knockdown staggery attack mm-hmm. but then you're plinking away again his side his uh, triangle move did not give enough complexity to play him for a prolonged period of time fair i thought Aerith was Aerith was really fun too she yeah, she Aerith had the potential to be very fun the only problem i had was that if you are in direct control of her everybody's suddenly focusing yeah. on her and you then well, yeah, well, like for me, I had I had geared her purely for DPS and glass cannon and using the the ward to double my cast and basically just one shotting like <laughs> most of the game at a certain point if you spec her the right way. Yeah, um, she could destroy things. You put down your ward and on a lot of battles, especially if they were prolonged battles, and there was a lot of battles that were just enemies coming out of the woodwork, she would get sometimes get swarmed and then kind of die. And then you get into this chain, like if you're going to lose a battle, it's because the character dies, you get into a sequence of, oh, well, I need to res them. Um, and then they get taken out again very quickly. It's She could go into that scenario very easily if you did go class cannon for some of the encounters, especially for the side content. Um, and then I'm imagining on hard, the idea that things just immediately, they really do swarm you. And it's it's really strange. See, it feels like the NPCs, like unless it's a boss character that does some ridiculous attack that just, they don't avoid at all. It's very hard for the NPC characters, the non-controlled characters uh, in your party to die. They take so much less damage than you. And then you can also outfit them to take even less damage with one of the, the, uh, the trinkets. So like... It's always, yeah, if I'm the active character, I'm going to get hurt badly. I better make sure I'm pretty topped off. Everybody else, I can just kind of wait and let them go. But man, it, it, that reduced your options. That reduced what you could play effectively. So the way that I ended up getting around that, especially as I got into hard mode and I had to be a whole lot more tactical with my uh, with my yeah. battles because otherwise I would lose, is it's very important to bounce around between characters mid-battle. Yep. Aerith is great. Whenever she gets her uh, her ATB gauges up and uh, you have everything set up, then you bounce over to her, let her, while, while everybody's still focused on who you were previously, you take that opportunity to let off your attacks and then bounce back before like they start swarming her too much. And then I, I and that's whenever I started spending a lot more time as Barrett because Barrett could get swarmed and he was fine. So I attract everybody's attention with Barrett. You know, he'd be picking people off and I'd just kind of give them commands as, as they had the opportunity and then setting things up and then bounce around as needed. At, whenever I started bouncing around more, it became a lot more fulfilling for me. Oh yeah, it's definitely, it's designed around bouncing around. And I I kind of just wanted to play Tifa and do chains. Yeah, same. That's the, more <laughs> active, like, that's the more active character. And what essentially happened was I would be playing Tifa almost constantly. I would sometimes bounce around, but mostly I would just be using their ATB to do supportive stuff. Uh, so like, I enjoyed Tifa enough where I wanted to constantly play as her. And the other characters felt like a chore. From a design perspective, how do you encourage characters kind of bouncing around? I think having a fatigue system almost where like, when you jump to a new character that is completely out of fatigue, they get a burst. 
they get something like, there's ways to do design where like the bouncing around concept can be really strong and like oh yeah it's my time to shine there's ways to encourage that experience they didn't really do that uh, so it could be very easy to you know the character you like to play the most and is by far the most interesting um, on a playoff perspective yeah i just want to play that a lot of players are going to naturally fall into that unless from a design perspective you encourage alternate behavior yeah yeah we, we could like sit here and talk about it for ages because yeah. there's, there's like design minutiae it's it's pretty up there like combat design is is the the meat and bones of of you know modern day video game design so and that's that gameplay is what carries you through the entire experience that has to be compelling because yeah, certainly not the narrative it's for some people some people really I know. Love I, some people really love it yeah. and i i was interested in it but i i need that i need combat playoffs i need escalation when your game when the gameplay becomes stagnant that's the death knell for me we're like okay all the other stuff adds up and compounds if there's interesting choices to be made going to new battles playouts and how i set up my stuff Great. I'll be pulled in because that's what got me interested in deciding the mechanics were interested in. When that becomes stale, I'm going to leave pretty quickly afterwards. And that's what happens in RPGs for me. Something I, I really liked about the, the remake, the visuals, visual aspect. Yeah, so let's talk uh, about it. There, yeah. So there's there's a lot to say there because clearly that was a large part of what they invested in. A lot of time and effort went into creating, you know, this is a scene, you know, this was a very simple single scene that you saw uh, in Final Fantasy VII, the original, for a few minutes. We're, we're, we're making it a lot longer, so there's got to be content here, and it's got to look good. Yeah, it's, it's, it's about five times longer than the original Midgar. The, the interesting thing, I think, about the remake in general is that in the original, you have Midgar. It's this focal point of the game, especially at the beginning but you see so little of it. You get to see the original cinematic as it shows you the overview of the city and then it kind of goes down to where the, the train is coming into a stop right next to the to the reactor. And that's most of what you see for, of the city. There's a little a bit that you spend on the street where you meet uh, Aerith for the first time after the reactor explodes. And then you never see above the plate again. You don't know how the upper crust lives yeah. in the original. It's it's sort of a mystery, and it's like it helps disconnect them. It helps them like essentially dehumanize them in a way. We're like, yeah, they're bad people, I guess, up there, and it's my cause is just. So Final Fantasy VII remake takes some approaches to that, where you, you see so much more of the top. I don't think you see enough of the top. They kind of pigeonhole themselves into the the main drag strip of Final Fantasy VII Midgar, and then. Their, their methods to expand it out just kind of included these quest hubs and making long cutscenes. And then I understand that that approach to things. I understand why they made the decision. And it probably, you know, for what they had to work with was the right move. But they definitely missed out on seeing more of Midgar and how how the upper crust lives. I think it's dangerous. I think it's dangerous showing more Midgar because... As I mentioned way, way earlier, a lot of Final Fantasy VII, a lot of its charm was like the mystique and mysteriousness of certain elements. And the less you show of it, the more you elude, the stronger that mystery remains. And the idea of like, how do the normal other people that aren't in the slum, like, what are their lives like? That's like, you can just think about it. You get a lot, you get views of that on the street where like, yeah, they seem kind of normal. They seem like people, which I guess isn't a bad thing to portray, but it just, it kind of demystifies it. So I, I can go the other direction. Played played carefully, it could have yeah. kind of re, it could have reinforced the disconnect between the slums and the and the and the upper pizza, the toppings, as you will. Yeah, they don't seem to have strong. Like you have Barrett have an interaction um, in the trains in Final Fantasy Remake, uh, and they're like kind of like, yeah, you guys are 
crummy, but yeah, there doesn't like a strong like. How do these people feel about the people beneath them? They're well, kind of the thing is, those those characters that they meet in the train, they live in the slums. They're not even well, upper right. crusters, uh, which makes you wonder like true. who the who the heck are these people who actually live up there? The only they people... never they never connect those dots, which is kind of frustrating. They never fill in those well, blanks of like why because you can tell a whole exactly. good side quest exactly. about that guy who's on the train that Barry yells at and gets mad at during the second reactor run. They do show Jesse's parents as far as the upper crust. So mm-hmm. that's like, the big, like they are the extremely uh, strong Shinra supporters, I guess the, the, the behind the scenes sort of level almost. And they didn't the normal they just, everyday people that are there. Yeah, like, they just like up there. It didn't feel like that element of seeing that kind of, that kind of was interesting for narrative um, for character development. The way that the intro movie to Final Fantasy VII original presented Midgar, it was like a really happening night scene, this bustling sort of experience on the top of like, man, I want to be a part of that. I want to see where that is. You know, they never would let you have that experience. <laughs> they neither gave it, despite coming back to it. They don't they don't give it to you. Yeah, no, it's I feel like they they try and they they work with what they got. And it's easy to do like oh would have could have with this, but I feel like this project had an impossible number of moving parts. Uh, both political and and kind of task based. I believe this was the first Square game that used Unreal Engine, but not the first one to ship with Unreal Engine. Yeah, there is so much going on behind the scenes of this game. I definitely want to say like we are super critical, but it, it is really clear uh, when you look at it with a certain kind of educated eye for how game development works. Like you could see just like, oh, here's parts where they really wish they could have done better. Like this is a part where they really wish they had more time. Yeah, it hurts. Um, it hurts internally. They they restarted development halfway through. You know, there was you know, there's definitely troubles that have been published previously. I feel like visually, you know, there there are certain chapters of the game that really do kind of sell it. Uh, Wall Market being one of them. I think Wall Market is the second demo. If the game had a second demo, it would be the Wall Market chapter. <laughs> so I feel like all the side quests are pretty okay, except the one that Everton knows that I'm talking about. <laughs> So what it had to its advantage is that it was a hub that sort of ex- that was the hub of original Midgar. So they took that content that was in the original game and they expanded it more. So that was all stuff that people, if they experienced it, remembered. And it gave them baselines. How do we fluff this up? How do we make this a little more interesting? And they did that effectively. I think that was a very good section of the game. What uh, side quests are you thinking of? The bandits in the tunnel where you go back to the... Oh my goodness, so that... The, the paralyzing guys. That is one of the major issues I have with combat and systems in this game. There's a lot of times where you're a single mm. character or just two characters, and the character you're, you, you are actively controlling will be targeted. We, we, you, we can just cut to it and like set the scene. You're only playing as Cloud during this. Yes, you're up against three people who can paralyze you for up to three seconds each <laughs> if they land an attack. And it's a very can't... fast attack. You cannot do anything to button mash your way out of it. No, you are literally unable to do anything for up to like five or six seconds if they get two hits on you. And then there's a guy that can steal your items or steal your gill uh, as you're paralyzed. And it's the most feel bad, like, give some sort of response. Give some sort of, as you say, like a button mash. Button mashes are kind of boring, but like time button presses and things like There's ways to make that somewhat more interesting if you desperately need a stun mechanic. Please don't do stun mechanics with a single party member. Yeah. Uh, some sort of active responsiveness to it. There's ways you kind of mitigate and make it kind of interesting. Nothing was done there. It was just, yeah, these enemies can stun. They're they were likely reused from the previous encounters and didn't think too much about the fact that it was just one person for the side quest. And man, that is, oof, that is rough. Yeah, it, it was a part of the game where I just kind of realized that someone wasn't paying attention or how did, how did this get, like, it's one of those moments in game design where you're like, 
they didn't want this to be in the game. Like, there's yeah. no way anyone wanted this to be in the game. I don't know how it's here. It's such a clear, anybody who plays it, it feels really, really bad, unresponsive, and trappy. Like, you just, you can't do anything here. And that should be a really clean, anybody who plays through that should understand that wasn't fun and should say, well, that should probably be changed to some degree. You know, sometimes that stuff gets missed. But back to the good parts of Wall Market, you know, anything involving the Don Corneo <laughs> is amazing. You can tell a lot of love went into any cutscene he's in. They, they just went a whole hog with all the visual flair. The Coliseum's cool, has a lot of character to it. Uh, those fights are actually pretty interesting at times. Although the, the Hell House fight can can roll on a bit long if you don't if you're not specced for certain things for magic. And that's um, not being able to change out your materia or your weapons mid battle. I get that that is that's very strong. It changes up things, but so that's how you actually make weapons interesting. Weapons are something that you can switch out. It takes an active time bar. Okay, whatever you need to do to make it fair, whatever. But they have unique materia slotted into them, and you can switch them out on the fly, allowing for active changes of battle setups within a battle without having to die, then change it at the very start, now that you know that you need to put lightning on people. Okay, that's actually interesting. That creates an element of active strategy within these battles. That could be really fun. They don't do it. But, man, they could have, and it could be a great experience. A little bit more time to bake and figure out these systems would have been great. But it's so it I know so much time went into this game. I know so much of and they it had to come out eventually. It has to come out. Back in the day, they were really trying to sell guides. You wanted to look up what they you know, what they're weak, what they're strong against, and then equip that. And that sold guides. I don't think that is good game design inherently. Giving an opportunity for change and for setting up new things mid-battle, even if it's limited, it's more interesting if it's limited. If you can't just change everything, you'd spend if you can change every element. You spend forever doing that perfectly mid-battle. That takes you out of it. Minor elements of change is great, though, where you have a few options. That's good stuff. Yeah, it's hard not to belabor it, but it is one of those things where, yeah, it's obvious the development was was troubled and they really wanted to get it out, and it is it is okay. It's it's a fine game. I personally would not say it's a good game, but I would say for what it was meant to be, Final Fantasy VII accomplishes its mission. I think everything has to be taken in the perspective of what... What the expectations, all the all the stuff around it. Just as Final Fantasy VII, you can't remove that from the fact that it was a powerhouse driving game of the PlayStation for that time was insane. That goes into the afterthoughts of the game, even if it's not the most cohesive in different ways. I think this is this game is what it needed to be, and I would say it was a good game. I just don't think it was not on the level of the original. And you know, that's a very hard bar to hit because of the all these circumstances and context around the original and around this new game. Imagine, imagine not knowing about Final Fantasy VII and being given this game. Wonder how that person reacts to this game, <laughs> or even knew about Final Fantasy VII. Because there was that, because that's, it's hard to even imagine that person just because of cultural osmosis. Unfortunately, we're getting old. Yeah, so those people are starting to exist. Well, for sure. You know, they're, they're, so there are eighteen-year-olds who who were born well past Final Fantasy VII's time. Yeah, but they get influenced by by all the the online stuff. They're like, oh, you got to know. I mean, and they can watch streams of it too. Even younger people are going to have a pretty good recognition of a lot of older games at this point now. Yeah, I can say that that Kira, who was in the first half of this uh, this episode, she was surprised at the beginning just by the fact that it wasn't a medieval fantasy game. Like, that's what she thought Final Fantasies were. So that, that, that gives you an idea of how fresh she was to it whenever she got into it. So we've been talking for a while. We're going to have to wrap it up here pretty soon, but I, I'd like to end uh, on, a, uh, on a very positive note. So what was your favorite part of the game? 
Oh, I can definitely say Wall Market. Yeah, the the first time you visit Wall Market is pretty pretty well put together. It's funny, it's silly. It feels the most like the original game at times, and it feels like that's when the characters start kind of the chemistry in the writing. What's there is actually starting to come up, and yeah, it's just I think it's where the game sings, and then after that, it's just <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I would actually agree that Wall Market, like just the whole part from the time you kind of see Tifa getting dragged over there up through whenever you fall into the hole at Don Corneo's, that's just a blast, almost start to finish. Man, what is my favorite part? It's actually pretty hard. I did enjoy Wall Market, but I wouldn't call it like, oh, this was a breakthrough. My experience here is really, really strong. I don't know if I really had that. It's a game where my most enjoyed experiences were sort of like having played Final Fantasy VII to completion in the past quite a while ago. It was like the little bits of recognizing the, the similarities and how they were different and what they were doing new that's interesting with them. And those were sprinkled throughout the entire game. Like, I don't think I could say a single defining point, but I'd say my, my favorite aspect of the game was just seeing differences and being surprised by the differences. And knowing, um, because I did you know watch content of the like seeing how they handled that to essentially cordon off Final Fantasy VII Remake for being just a remake. That's what makes me excited again, for what the, the future content is going to hold as well. Because it knowing Final Fantasy VII well, the original, means you get a lot more value. And it enhances both games. Any point of the game, any aspect of the game that allows that callback to function effectively, that's the strongest point to me. I very much want to return to Final Fantasy VII original, just play through it again, and then kind of go back to Final Fantasy VII Remake, especially when the next game, next um, iteration comes out, and then kind of see what's changed. For sure. I have this theory that, so the, the name of the game is Final Fantasy VII Remake, and I think that title means multiple things. It is a remake of Final Fantasy VII, but we spent all this time uh, not really talking too much about the narrative, but uh, one of the things, one of the main parts about the narrative are these whispers, these uh, weird ghost things that kind of push you to do one thing or another. So it's the the, the kind of destiny effectors of the game and what the expectations of the player and what the character should be doing in these experiences and moments. What it's kind of setting up there at the end is, because it shows the end of the original game, at the end of this game like it actually shows like the very end of the game and everything that happens and all the characters kind of see visions of this and they're like oh no that sucks and we don't really want to... i sure hope that's not where destiny is headed and they're like well these things are the arbiters of destiny screw these guys we're going to try to change that and so it's it seems to be suggesting that this new series is remaking the original in a different way yeah, yeah, I was pretty like what I got from the ending was it's pretty clearly saying that it's a sequel to Final Fantasy VII, not a remake. It's right. kind of it's a big twist. Yeah. Is that it's, you know it's Eris doing some time travel shenanigans? Well, I mean they they have determination. You know, Eris is very determined, <laughs> and I, I liked it. So look, watching the content and you know seeing how the playouts are going, I like that. It keeps. It keeps, if you want to say the sanctity, I think it's a little bit high-minded, but the original intentions of Final Fantasy VII, they don't have to be tread upon at all with that scenario. Mm-hmm. And that was a major concern for people going to it. Like, how do you compete? How do you try to create a remake of a yeah. game and actually change things up? I feel and like I, it's a very clever out for them. Yeah. Like, they knew they were never going to be able to satisfy the people who wanted their beat-for-beat beat remake. Yeah. So they, they had this very Nomura narrative device of the what are the death eaters <laughs> the whispers yeah <laughs> i i like there i've seen some theories that the whispers are like how the game does perceives the fan base you know you can't change this 
uh, you know, you can't you can't alter this event. I think it's interesting. I think they came up with a pretty clever narrative device to kind of lampshade a lot of the challenges they were given. Yeah, there's a lot of really clever stuff going on in here, and and they I think they did the best of what they had. Before I really understood what the whispers were, I was. And I sort of got into this pretty quickly in the, the gameplay. It was pretty clear that they were forcing along the original pathway. I was sort of dreading if Midgar was 30 hours uh, or more, what, what the full Final Fantasy VII completely true to the original uh, narrative content. I don't know if I want to play that experience. I don't know if that's something that I will ever be able to consume. I am, so, I am incredibly interested to see how they follow this up. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty clear that you know certain parts of Square really know how to make a great open world. The 14 team doing an amazing job although i i I really am wondering if you know if they they have the talent on deck to make a really great open world and i hope they get those people on this project is it going to be a linear experience into slowly opening up an open world are they going to immediately try to put in open world concepts then the next one it's going to be an ubisoft open world game ever dread oh man we're going to climb towers we're going to climb windmills we already already climbed it's a lot of you do a lot of climbing in Final Fantasy VII, I guess. <laughs> you don't do much revealing. You kind of, you got to climb this tower. You got to reveal the surrounding side quests. And then you got a newbie soft open world game. All right, I'll stop. <laughs> Uh, well, thanks so much for, for talking to me, John and Everdred. We do have to, to wrap things up. So uh, listeners, if you have any thoughts about Final Fantasy VII Remake you'd like to share, or if you've got thoughts about any of our other upcoming episodes, please email them to your friends at fangamer.com. You can also send us voicemails either by using the Anchor app on your phone or by emailing us an audio file. Next week, we'll be continuing our EXP share of Avatar The Last Airbender with the first half of Book 2. And you're also welcome to send us questions about pretty much anything really and we'll try to answer them uh we're not necessarily going to be good at answering them because we're not experts at a lot of things but we are experts on the subject of fangamer and i am personally an expert at uh making certain that i get as many pokemon as i can possibly do between uh gem battles in any given pokemon game what are some of your areas of expertise outside of fangamer john and everred uh back in the day i was kind of known as a master or god of photoshop I don't know if I really agree with that. So, but, so, so you are so you are a master of Photoshop of ten years ago. Yeah, <laughs> I think I live in a in a world right now where my work is my hobby. But yeah, I guess I, I, have a, I have a pretty big uh, pretty big interest in, in film and cinematography and stuff like that. All right, so that pretty much does it for this week. Uh, any final thoughts? Final Fantasy no. remake. Uh, it, yeah. It's it's its own thing. And the more they push into it being its own thing, probably for the better. Yeah, I agree. I think I think they have a good starting point. I think they have a team now. It's not as turbulent, hopefully. And the next time, we'll probably get something a lot more polished. And I'm looking forward to it. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Everdred and John, for joining me this week. Listeners, if you would like to support this podcast, please consider buying something from the Fangamer store. Alternately, just share us with your friends, tweet about us, or even tweet at us. Thank you, Super Soul Brothers, for the music on this episode. And thank you, listener, for listening. We are your friends at Fangamer. Try to make someone smile today. And let's plan on hanging out again next week.